Welcome to 100 Centuries, a history conversations podcast. I'm Connie B. Dowell, and um, though he's not here to record this intro, um, you will be hearing Stephen B. Dowell shortly. Today, we have our first interview with an author of a historical fiction work. Um, we interview Julian David Stone um, about his book, The Strange Birth, Short Life, and Sudden Death of Justice Girl. And um, in that book, he talks about, or in the interview, he talks about the 1950s Hollywood in which the book is set, about issues of McCarthyism, which come up in the plot, um, and about his research and publication process. And so without further ado, I will take you straight to the interview. Okay, we are alive um, with 100 centuries. 100 centuries. Yep, and I'm um, Connie B. Dowell. And I'm Stephen B. Dell. And we are interviewing today author Julian David Stone. Um, this uh, broadcast may be heavily edited if we can get it done because I don't know um, how long it will take to get him on board. Um, so this first part might be rather boring if it ends up staying in the recording. Hopefully I can get rid of it. Probably should be able to get rid of it. I think we got it. Oh, yep. yes. <laughs> um, the camera is going to do this weird switching back and forth thing, um, I'm afraid. Um, depending on who it sense, the program senses is talking. Gotcha. Um, looks like we got it. Did you have any problems getting... No, I just, had, I just had to install the, the software. It's the first time I've used it, but it was pretty easy. So, nice to meet you. Oh, yeah, nice, nice to meet, to meet you, you as well. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, that, Great. And would you like to um, you know, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your book? Um, my name is Julian David Stone, and I'm the author of The Strange Birth, Short Life, and Sudden Death of Justice Girl, which is a novel about the world of live television uh, in the 50s and tells the story of a writer from that era who quite by accident finds himself in charge of his own show. And it just tells the story of like the title says, the, the short existence of this show and the crazy battles that he gets to, into with his lead actress and the head of his network. So do you want to start you? I know you had a question about... Um... Uh, oh, yes. Like, um, so this, this takes place in, in the 50s. Um, and and it was described as the golden age of television. I guess my question is, what exact period is the golden age of television? And sure. what made it the golden age of television? Great question. Well, the golden age of television is generally referred to as the period from the end of World War II until about 1956, 1957. And this is the era when television was live. Videotape did not exist, which is something that people, when I talk to them about, they can't even get their head around. Because that meant that every single thing that you were watching on your television at that moment was happening in a soundstage somewhere around the country. And that, that was day and night, everything on television, commercials, news, uh, comedy shows, dramas, everything. And it created some unbelievably powerful pieces of work because it was all live. So it had the spontaneity of, of theater, yet it was, it was, you know, it was coming out of your television. And so that's one of the main reasons that it's referred to as the golden age. And it was also the people that were writing in this era, you know, Rod Serling, Reginald Rose, Patty Chayefsky, these people, a lot of them were veterans of World War II. So they were really using this new medium 
to really talk about very complex things, things that you, you couldn't imagine on public television today. It's kind of amazing. You would see it on cable today, but not on public television. So that's, that's where the term comes from. The content was very advanced. And also television was a very, very new thing. So it wasn't seen in, it was basically centered mostly in the major cities. So I don't want to say this in any way that's condescending, but they were writing for a more, say, theatrical audience, an audience that was used to different things. So they didn't have to water stuff down. And, you know, it just it, it really was a golden age. If, if you see these dramas, they're amazing because nobody felt limited by the fact that it was live. They did incredibly complicated things and all of it happening at that moment. Fascinating. How would, um, obviously, since, since you were saying the recording equipment didn't, was still, I guess, in its infancy, didn't really exist, um, you know, is there a lot of this television left to be watched? I mean, it seems like a lot of it would be lost. Right. But because there was no way to record it, they, they had this thing that was called a kinescope, which was literally, and I'm not exaggerating, it was a movie camera aimed at a TV. And that was the, so anything you see from about 1956 and before, um, is literally this setup where they would be doing something with multiple cameras on a stage and you know you would have a director who would be cutting between the different cameras and the final result would be seen on a monitor say in his direct in, in the in the control booth and somewhere they would also have a television like people were watching at home and they would set up a movie camera and just aim it right at that TV screen and that's what you see and there's actually fortunately quite a bit that still exists a lot is lost but Thankfully, quite a bit does exist. Oh, cool. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, so oh, and you can see them on YouTube. If you go on YouTube, there's tons of this stuff. Out oh, there. excellent. It's really yeah. is a lot of it in the, the public domain right now? Yeah, a lot okay. of it is. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Yeah, very different from um, public domain from <laughs> the book world, where I'm more familiar, yeah. which takes yeah. a lot longer. Yeah. Um, so um, the, the book description, um, it seems like the the main character Johnny had a lot of kind of run-ins with um, McCarthyism and some ethical debates um, without giving too much plot away. Is that something you'd like to share sure. with us? Sure. Well, my story starts with actually Johnny getting fired, and the, the re he's he, at the time that the story begins, he's a he's a comedy writer on a show called called Hermes Henhouse, which was you know that was another thing that was a big part of the golden age of television. A lot of people referred to it as the second coming of vaudeville because you had a lot of people like Milton Berle is probably the most famous one whose careers disappeared during radio. They, they had been on stage in the 20s in vaudeville. They didn't make the transition to, to radio, but suddenly television comes along and their acts are completely revived. So you had Sid Caesar had a show, Milton Berle, all of these comics came back. And Johnny in the beginning is a writer on this. Well, he gets fired because he's unwilling to sign a loyalty oath to the United States, which is something that people, they, they started forcing everybody in television to do during this period. And it's not that he's not loyal he's as loyal as can be he just doesn't feel that you need to sign this you know that this is this is sort of ridiculous so they fire him and that's sort of what leads him to uh i'll just sort of give the brief setup to the book that comes out of that as a as a parting shot just before the show goes on the air that night he changes a sketch 
that a character, it's a, it's a sketch that he's written that's a takeoff on the Superman craze of that period called Justice Girl. So he changes the dialogue around, goes up to the actress and gives her the new pages just before they go on the air. And because it's live, she doesn't have a, she doesn't have a choice. She just goes on and give the, gives these new lines. Well, he leaves the, you know, he's been fired. He leaves the theater where they're shooting it, thinking that's the end of his TV career, goes and gets drunk, wakes up the next morning to discover that his little joke has become a sensation and the network wants it now as its own show. And that's how the story sort of gets launched. So he goes from being fired to being begged back. So, and they, and they decide to forget that they fired him. <laughs> <laughs> so, and this ties in with the whole um, uh, McCarthyism type thing. So you mentioned these loyalty oaths that people would have mm -hmm. to, um, to sign. Um, and we are all familiar with the stories of being um, blacklisted, I guess. Right. Um, about how many people actually got affected by all this? Boy, I'll tell you, you know, the, the numbers are, are so varying, but it, it's amazing to talk to people at the time because it's it's literally something like out of a Kafka novel because they all just sort of shrugged their shoulders that it was this thing that was going on that nobody could sort of get a handle on. And they you can literally, you know, I heard stories from people and you can read stories where they would talk about that they would be, you know, they come in one morning to rehearse a show that's supposed to go on the air and they do a morning rehearsal and they come back from lunch and an actor was gone and he'd been replaced. Somebody had done a background check on him and something had come up, you know, and, and he was replaced. He was blacklisted. And, you know, like, like any of these things, there was, there was a tremendous amount of um, corruption evolved in, in how even the blacklist was handled. I mean, it, it was really a horrible, horrible period in, in uh, really in the country and particularly in the entertainment arts because they really did it to themselves. They right. really just, just fed on this thing. And just, if I can give a, a funny anecdote, the, um, uh, the Screen Actors Guild had a loyalty oath that, that you know, like all of, like Johnny had one as a, as a writer, as a writer. And these, these oaths actually existed into the 60s and it was actually the Grateful Dead of all people that broke the rock group, that broke the, um, the loyalty oath with the Screen Actors Guild because they were asked to join in the 60s and they said, we're not going to sign this. And after that, nobody else was forced to sign it. So that's just a kind of a funny anecdote that how it was finally ended. So that actually reminds me something on this, a similar vein. Um, uh, comic books used to have uh, like, like a morality thing that they had oh, to yeah. sign off on. And I think it was, I think it was uh, Stan Lee actually, who eventually was just like, eh, let's see if we can get away without having it on there. And yeah, there, there was a comics code. It was all part of the same thing in the fifties part. Of, it, it wasn't exactly McCarthyism, but it was the same sort of hysteria. It was started, I think it was in 54. They put in the comics code. And by the late sixties, you had the same sort of thing where people just finally went, you know, this thing has no real legal power. And they just ignored it, and that was the end of it, you know. It, it, and the same thing you saw in movies. I mean, that's why you see all at the same time, you know, movies start getting more mature in the 60s because all of these weird codes that had been set up really had no legal basis. They were It was always threats of boycotts, and eventually people just ignored it, or excuse me, ignored it, and the, the threats really had no, no power, and that was the end of them. So the title of the book... Um, you know, mentions Justice Girl. Can you tell us a little bit 
who who Justice Girl is and a little bit about this. Sure, Justice Girl is the character. Justice Girl is the character from the TV show that the main character Johnny Derby has created, as I explained, quite by accident. And it's it's basically a parody of the Superman craze of the time. Think of it as you know, sort of a female superhero character. But what Johnny does is that he starts to use the show to get back at these people that he feels have been unfair to him and have been you know bad people in general. So he actually fights McCarthyism and profiteering during World War II and he uses it to, he has some own personal issues in his life, you know, that he, injustices that he feels his family was a victim of. So he starts to use it for that. And that of course causes all kinds of trouble because the network just wants a hit TV show. And suddenly they have to contend with this, with this author who's doing these things on this show Show that they don't want him to do because then that gets your advertisers upset and really the you know the advertisers are the ones that that really run everything because particularly in this area advertising was different a show was uh, shows were individually sponsored you didn't have you know like today uh, commercials come on and uh, you know there might be ten different products advertised in the course of a one-hour show back then one one company would do the entire hour so if you were Johnson Wax and you had the Johnson Wax hour, you know, featuring Sid Caesar or something like that, you had a lot of control of the content because they didn't want you to pull your money. You were paying for that show. So that, that's kind of the, the issues that they had at the time with advertisers. And that was eventually broken also by the late, by the end of the late 50s. They started doing the 30 and second and one minute uh, uh, commercials. So what drew you to this period? Um... Well, you know, initially I, I grew up a huge fan of The Twilight Zone, which I'm, you know, everybody knows The Twilight Zone. That was created by Rod Serling. Well, that's created in like 1959, 1960 by, Rod's, by Rod Serling. Well, when I began to look into him as a writer, I discovered that he'd had this whole career for 10 years, basically, before writing in the golden age of television. So that drew me to looking at the work he had done. And that's really where he became famous. He was probably the most famous writer of the golden age of television. He wrote uh, famous live television pieces called Patterns, Requiem for a Heavyweight, The Comedian. All of these were humongous hits that were during the era. So that's how I first discovered it. And I was really just blown away by how complicated these dramas were and to think that they're being done live. I mean, you're, you're talking about like when you're watching something, you know, behind the camera, walls are flying around and people are running back and forth. And I really realized that for them to do these, these pieces back then, you had as much of a performance going on behind the camera as you did in front of it. it it's really amazing what they did. And so I discovered it through, through Serling. And his, the, one that, the one he's most famous for was called Patterns. And it was so popular, it first aired in January of 1955. And there was so much acclaim. And as I said, remember, this is the era before there's videotape. So there was so much demand for people who had missed it. They just restaged the whole thing three <laughs> weeks later. It was the first time it was ever done. In, in the history of television because they couldn't just put the videotape in and play it again as a rerun. They had to just do the whole thing live again. And that's what they did. So, and that's the one I recommend people look for. You can find it on YouTube. It's like you said, it's, you know, public domain and it's really, it's fantastic. Um, fans of the TV series, Mad Men, Mad Men in particular, will see it's, there's no question. In fact, Matthew Weiner, the creator of Mad Men has been very clear in saying how influenced he was by this particular piece. Cool. Um, so we uh, we read from from your website and some other uh, media that you've got um, a pretty 
serious media background yourself. So that probably yeah. helped with the research process. But um, is there anything about the process that you'd like to share that was interesting or challenging? Oh, you mean writing the book in particular or? or? Yeah, writing the book or researching that period. And sure. Well, I'll tell you, I, I've been a screenwriter for the last 20, 25 years and actually writing the book. And one of the reasons I was drawn to do it was incredibly freeing because when, when I'm writing, I've, I've done almost exclusively screenplays, ironically, considering I wrote about television. But um, and when you're writing a screenplay, you know, you have a certain number of pages, you have act breaks. It's very confined. When I started writing the book, I just went wherever the story told me. And, and the story has three main characters. I haven't really gone in. We've just talked about the one uh, character, the writer. But as I was writing it, I suddenly came up with this idea of that each character would have a backstory or a flashback for lack of a better term, not really a term of book term, but uh, that would take place during World War II. And, and I would use, I would show something early about television during that also. And that's something that when you're writing a screenplay, you cannot do that. When you're writing a book, if suddenly you ha decide, oh my God, I can do this. I can write 40 pages on each character in another time period. You just make it the book a little longer. Can't do that with a screenplay. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, it's gotta be, you know, your agent will throw it right back at you. It's gotta be 110. I mean, today it's, they want them at a hundred pages. When I started, everything was 120. Now they want it at a hundred. So they've gotten shorter. <laughs> This is a lot, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. Um, although that's happening more and more um, in, in independent publishing as well. Book, shorter books are selling more. Um, oh, really? Is that, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm relatively new to, to, to the book world. So, yeah, interesting. Oh. Um, so that actually answered another one of my questions about how writing a novel was different from working on other types of media. Um, but is there anything you'd like to share about the book production or publishing process that was um, special for you or interesting? You know, it was just fantastic. I mean, it's without a doubt, you know, the most satisfying thing I've done. I, I enjoyed it so much. I mean, you know, it's just been great. I mean, and it's been really gratifying, you know, more so than screenplays I've written or even films I've been involved with. And, you know, I, I, I believe you guys have a writing background. You know, you, you sort of disappear into a hole with these things for years. And when you come out, you just have no idea how it's going to be received. And it's just the reception has been beyond anything I, I dreamed of. I mean, it's been really, really gratifying. I felt very, very good about it, but you just never know. You know, that <laughs> first time that somebody reads it who doesn't know you and, and really likes it is very exciting. Definitely. Um, well, if you got any other questions that I, occurred to you? Um, I do. Now, I guess this is less historical based. Well, I guess it is a little historical based. Maybe more opinion based. It seems like right now, um, television in general, the, the landscape is completely changing with, with a lot of this online um, things with streaming and things like that. Mm -hmm. Kind of where do you see TV going? It seems like we're almost in like a, a, a with the whole internet age, a new renaissance of, of ideas here. Um, you know, kind of, I guess, what's the next step for a lot of these things? Because it seems well, like the old models no longer work. Yeah, no, that, that's true. You know, one thing I will say, and it's been bandied throughout that we're in another golden age of television, and I actually believe that. The, the work being done on, on cable, it, it's kind of jaw-dropping, the amount of really great shows that there are out there, you know. They're not necessarily on the networks anymore, but they are out there. So I think absolutely, and what you're talking about has just made it, you know, There's it's so great that almost anybody can start a show and then somebody can pick it up and, you know, it can go viral or, you know, and then get 
picked up by a, by a more major distributor. So, I mean, I think that's really the future. You're just going to see more, you know, now, you know, sort of the first thing that was started happening in the 80s with the explosion of independent cinema was anybody can make a movie. Now it's almost anybody can make a TV series because you now have, you know, it was one thing to have a movie and then you still had to go through a distributor. Now everybody's got a TV station. You know, your, your website is a TV station. Right. Well, and then in YouTube is obviously a gigantic TV station. So, you know, uh, yeah, no, there's no question. I think that's definitely the future. And I mean, it is it is staggering the number of shows out there. I mean, what, what was it that like Netflix announced that they're going to put out a new Marvel series every six months now based on another character? I mean, it's just, you know, it's just amazing. So and right. I, I do have to mention this. My, my novel has been optioned to become a TV series. So oh, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it is it is just kind of funny how it goes around. You know, you write this, you're, you know, you're, you're sort of trying to take a break from the entertainment business or that part of it, and then suddenly it ends up back there. But believe me, I'm thrilled. And, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. It's got a long way to go from that, but the first step is all done and signed, and uh, we'll just have to see what happens. So, Yeah, well, definitely good luck with that. That's, thank you. Thank you. It was a big accomplishment just to get that option. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was. It's, uh, yeah, no, it, it's been great. And, you know, I don't, I, uh, I don't know how much, you know, you guys have followed this stuff, but I just, I just did a whole bunch of promotion at Comic-Con of the novel, and it was really, really fun to do that. I got a girl to dress up as Justice Girl, and we went around with her, and it was fun because everybody, of course, thought she was Wonder Woman right. or, or thought she was uh, Supergirl, but, you know, we gave out flyers and stuff, and it was really great. A lot of good stuff came out of it, and it was just really fun. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the stuff that, that really kind of makes it all worthwhile, and it was also good because she looked like a period superhero, you know, like like a 50s one, that stood out quite a bit at Comic-Con where everybody's sort of, you know, more contemporary characters or at least are a modern version of an older character, you know? So that was really fun. Kind of the next question I have, I guess this goes back to, um, and, and hopefully we can edit this so it makes a little bit more sense. No problem. Um, um, I guess going back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier with McCarthyism, um, go ahead. We, we touched upon kind of how, you know, crazy it was that people were saying loyalty oaths, things like that. Um, but obviously McCarthyism did have to come out of, of someone, some actual fear that the country right. was being overrun by this right. red menace. What, um, were there actually, you know, movements going on? Was, was this something that, I guess, started off with legit worry that then just kind of escalated and went out well, of it? You know, it, it comes out of World War II. You know, the, the Soviets are, are, you know, our allies during the war. And then the war ends and suddenly, you know, we're fighting over what, you know, the spoils of Europe and, and people are posturing. So, you know, that was the Soviet Union a threat? Of course. But, you know, you had members, this particularly, you know, I have a lot of uh, personal knowledge from people that I've known and read and also read about members of the Writers Guild you know, who were fighting in, 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 or, or in Europe on the side, on, you know, for our country, who then after the war suddenly are accused of being communists, you know, of subverting America. So it, it got out of hand. I mean, was there a threat? I'm sure like anything, I'm sure the Soviets had spies here, but it was, you know, it was, you, if, if you went to a meeting 20 years earlier as a 20 year old kid, just like, Hey, what's this communist party thing? You were ruined. You know, I mean, as they said, you know, most of the, you know, a lot of people that were accused at the time said, I went to the meeting because there were hot girls there. You know, that more than said, I didn't know anything about politics. I just got invited by a pretty girl, and you know, I was there once, and suddenly you find yourself without a career. You know, it it was it was just out of hand, and it was driven by some very virulently 
sort of right-wing people that were really trying, in some cases, trying to settle scores. Frankly, there was some anti-Semitism involved in it. You know, there were, there were a lot of layers to it. You know, was there, of course, there was a threat from the Soviet Union, but was it actually, you know, were, were there people working in the entertainment industry to create content to overthrow the United States is kind of ridiculous. Right. Think of that. I, I don't remember too many TV shows bringing down countries, you know, so, but that's, that's kind of what, you know, they, they, they claimed anyway. Right. Do you have any other questions? Um, no, but um, if there's anything else you'd like to um, to share kind of as parting thoughts and where um, our listeners can find you online. Sure, ab- absolutely. Um, the book is available at Amazon.com, and I do. Uh, I, it's both a Kindle and a paperback. And I do have a website. I do have a website, JulianDavidStone.com, and you can read more about the the book and, and other stuff I've done. I, you can read more about my background in um, in uh, in entertainment as a, both a filmmaker and a writer. And yeah, the book's at Amazon, and uh, you know I, I'm really proud of it. And you can check it out. You can read what other people have written about it, and all kinds of other stuff. And I've also done kind of in the same fifties vein, I made a couple of um, short little documentaries for the Frank Sinatra estate. And those are on my website and they're on YouTube also. And you can see those. And those were really fun because they were, didn't deal with any, anything political, but it did deal with the, with the fifties and, you know, Sinatra's music and stuff like that. So if people are interested in general about that era, there's some other good stuff on my, on my website. So. All right. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for um, being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad this worked out. This was really fun. Yeah. Thank you. So, all right. All right. Well, that's um, it for us. So we're signing off. And again, I'll get back in touch when we've got um, a more polished recording available. And if you need need anything else from me, you know, I don't know how you put these together, but I have all kinds of photographs and stuff. You know, if you can, if if you go on my Facebook page, you can see the stuff that I did at Comic-Con, excuse me, at Comic-Con. There's a lot of stuff with the, with the girl is justice girl. And we did, we recreated, um, we did some recreations of, uh, of like a, a TV studio in the fifties and all of that with her being filmed and all that. So that's something else if you want to, I should have probably mentioned that when we were actually doing the show, but if you want to put that in there, but you can go to my Facebook page and there's some great mm-hmm. pictures of, of justice girl and fifties television and all of that. And they're really fun. So. So, so cool. Yeah. That all would right. Be great. Um, Definitely. All right. So um, it's the, this, the audio episode is probably not going to come out till um, much later in August because we've got one episode slated be- to release before yeah. this one. So um, probably no late problem. August when we'll get back. It's great. Terrific. Okay. All right. Nice well, to meet both of you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. And thank you again for being on the show. Oh, absolutely. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right, you too. All right, you too. Bye. 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 Thank you again for listening to 100 Centuries. And again, you can find us at 100centuries.com. That's 100 Centuries spelled out, not the numbers. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. And we really love to um, have your feedback. Though, um, a couple of quick announcements. If you try to get in touch with the show or give us some feedback, we may not be super responsive for the next couple weeks or to a month um, because we have a baby due like any minute. And so we we love your feedback. We've got pre-scheduled content coming out. Um, so things will still be releasing during that super busy new baby period. But we won't be the best, por- best correspondents for a while. Uh, another announcement is that my own 
historical novel, uh, or rather my own historical novella, because this is a slightly shorter book, um, a young adult historical called The Poison in All of Us is now available for pre-order on Amazon. So you can find it on Amazon or on Goodreads. And that is all for this episode. Thank you again for listening. And thanks again to um, Julian for coming on the show. This is 100 Centuries signing off. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>